Hello everyone and welcome back to the airport, the one happiest, most positive place for all the latest news on your favourite members of the British royal family. Um, I am in a good mood today, not because this is the second or slash third time I've attempted to record this podcast, because I'm back in London. Maggie, who is on the line with me now, our wonderful foreign correspondent, uh, we are one step closer to being reunited. Hey, Omid. I know. I'm Well, I'm excited that we're one step closer, but if I'm being honest, I'm really excited that I'm one step closer to Yoshi. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I hate to break it to you, but that's why I'm in this friendship. <laughs> it's for your dog. He will be back in London tomorrow. He's just had a little operation, so... Well, it's good to have you back in London. This is this is this is a sign of hope. This is a sign of progress. It is. I feel like we are inching back to normal. I feel like we can stop using the term "new normal." <laughs> <laughs> Something we probably all should have done already, but <laughs> yes. Uh, but it's been great, and I think also one thing we'll talk about this episode is just how we started to see members of the royal family yeah. stepping back into their sort of quote-unquote normal royal roles, you know, away from the webcams and actually back to in-person royal engagements. I'm and saying it now, I'm going to miss the queen and her webcam. <laughs> I, know. I just has been like a the queen on Zoom. <laughs> it's been a rare treat, for sure. I know. But it does mean that we've been able to see uh, members like Prince Charles uh, back to doing what he does best. Um, and we'll be talking about those engagements shortly and why I love them so much. <laughs> <laughs> Just like a teaser for everyone to you know, make sure you stick around. Omid's going to share how much he loves Charles hanging out with farm animals later. <laughs> it's like the highlight of his day. <laughs> And of course, uh, Kate, the Duchess of Cambridge, was also out in person at a really heartwarming engagement at a children's hospice. She helped plant a garden there, and I'll actually be catching up with that patronage to hear more about the work that she's been doing with them in person and also behind the scenes. We'll yeah, also be that was catching a great up. Moment. It really was, it was beautiful. We'll also be catching up with the latest goings on with the Sussexes. We have everything. Uh, the couple really shifted their focus onto the Black Lives Matter movement. I'll be talking with one of the uh, organizations in LA that they've been working closely with and hearing uh, just about their involvement in that movement. Uh, Prince Harry also was at the Princess Diana Awards virtually, uh, giving a rather impressive speech uh, that touched on this subject as well as uh, racial bias and institutional racism. And so it's really been an eventful week for them. Uh, also in the headlines, of course, uh, the couple have moved their court case with the Mail on Sunday one step forward. And we'll be breaking down some of the details in those court documents too. But Maggie, back to my favourite subject, Prince Charles. <laughs> <laughs> Really, we were just talking to get back to Prince Charles. <laughs> That's what we really care but I about. I think today. why this is significant is, you know, Prince Charles, I think, as a member of the royal family, was really the family member that represented uh, COVID-19 in a way that I don't even think that he thought he would be. You know, he really went through the entire gamut of uh, uh, things connected to this pandemic that has affected us all he uh, was diagnosed with the virus he went into full quarantine he came out the other side in good health and and continued to then work uh, very busily behind the scenes and now we're actually seeing him out back on his feet 
in public doing the stuff that he enjoys most. That's such a good point. I, I, I don't think any of us really saw this coming, right? I mean, if you remember, Charles was diagnosed at kind of the beginning of when this pandemic broke out, at the beginning of lockdown. There was so much unknown and he really became the, the face of it. And you know, he was part of that vulnerable population. He's over 70 years old. He, uh, there were a lot of concerns for his health when he was diagnosed. And I think, you know, for a lot of people who are also in that vulnerable age range in the UK and around the world, people look towards him. Uh, how was he doing? You know, could this be me? Could this be my family? And so uh, the fact that he's followed the rules, you know, him and his wife have, like you said, come out the other side of this and now they're back working again. I mean, to see him actually out doing engagements and doing his job, it's its really incredible. And again, goes back to that, uh, what we were talking about earlier on, that there are these little things of hope that we're seeing. And, you know, obviously all the scientists are saying we're only at the beginning of this pandemic and so we shouldn't make light of the long road ahead. But at the same time, we need some hope right now. Good grief. I mean, I'll take all the hope I can get. So being able to see Charles out there with his farm animals at an engagement, I mean, what a sign of hope this is. Exactly. And I think we've all wondered how he's doing and the smile that he had on his face at all of his, these engagements in the past week really told us exactly how he was doing. Yesterday he was out uh, with the Mayor of London, Sadiq Khan, uh, meeting key workers from Transport to, for London who have literally kept this city moving flawlessly throughout the pandemic. And so that was a chance for him to really sort of get to see what had gone on behind the scenes. Um, but we also saw him out in the rural uh, countryside visiting Cotswold Farm Park a couple of days ago um, in Cheltenham and of course this visit did have a purpose Charles was highlighting the work that they were doing to support uh, native rare breeds of animals which does have a link to the virus because of course these farms really had to keep going throughout the pandemic um, and deal with a whole gamut of issues including the fact that every restaurant in this country hasn't actually been ordering uh, like um, meat from the farms of this country and of course Charles is a farming prince uh, as owner of the Duchy of Cornwall he's uh, very much involved in agriculture and farming uh, but this was also a fantastic opportunity to see something we haven't seen in a while which was Charles and a variety of farm animals I, I love that I have mentioned Charles and farm animals like five times in this podcast before we even told the story. So I apologize for everyone listening if they're like, what is she talking about? But it just goes to show how excited the world is to see Charles back with his farm animals. We saw him with horses. We saw him with pigs. Um, but like you said, it actually is part of you know this much bigger story. And what I love too is this is something that Charles has been such a champion of for so long. And so to make it one of the things that he goes back to right away, once he's able to have these engagements in person, you know, it's very much a passion for him. And it's great to just see him back out there on the ground, being able to actually, you know, talk about these issues with the people that are living through them. Absolutely. He met with some of the staff working at Cotswold Farm Park, um, but also fed some hungry pigs their lunch. <laughs> he got to meet 20 rare breeds. Uh, oh my gosh. I don't, did you even know there are 20 rare breeds? <laughs> See, I learn something every podcast, Omid. Uh, he also paid a visit to a flour mill, uh, the Shipton Mill, uh, which looks after a number of variety of mill flowers in the country. And this again has a tie to the pandemic itself because of course, at the beginning of lockdown, which hard to believe was three months ago now 
the country, I, I would say the world, went absolutely baking mad and the demand for flour was at a next level. I'm sure you remember the attempts that we all made at banana bread in those early did days. Did yours ever turn out? How did your banana bread go on I didn't do very well. I ha- I'm gluten free, so trying to do gluten free oh, so you had to do a whole banana <laughs> bread, it just was not, it did not work out well. Oh no! But at least you know you, you you took part in the moment. The moment was baking banana bread. Exactly, and I also mention this because I I feel like we always have to mention bread or cheese for you. <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about with my lockdown diet. <laughs> no, you actually just came back from Paris. It's true. Yeah, I, I you know it was it was a great assignment. The Eiffel Tower was opening back up. Start uh, talk about a sign of hope, really, for the world. You know, after months of lockdown, and France had one of the strictest lockdowns in all of Europe. You know, we talk about Charles being under lockdown, but in France and in Paris, people needed a permission slip signed to be able to leave their apartments, and even then, it had to be for you know one of the permissible excuses, and it, it was really, really strict. So, uh, the sign of the Eiffel Tower opening back up to tourists was seen by so many there. And because it's such an iconic landmark, we're seen by so many around the world. It's just this moment where, again, we have a long battle ahead, but here's a little bit of hope. And uh, I got to be there for it on opening day, which was incredible. It's actually my first time up on the Eiffel Tower ever, so pinch myself. And while I was there, I just got to eat um, tons of bread and cheese. So it was a pretty good assignment. <laughs> you know, I really helped out the restaurant industry. I ate a lot of cheese plates out. Did my part, Omid. Saving the French economy by yourself. Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's been great to see things sort of shifting towards normality again. And I think that these engagements with members of the royal family throughout the pandemic were definitely a challenge. I think it's hard to, certainly as a journalist, it's hard to keep making Uh, zoom stories appear fresh or to really sort of be able to highlight the stories without the great visuals that we're so used to from members of the royal family and so that's what made it such uh, a delight I would say to see the Duchess of Cambridge uh, visiting the Nook the East Anglia Children's Hospice's uh, purpose-built hospice in Norfolk which is only about an hour away from their Anne Hall home and she visited there last Thursday to help families plant a garden Uh, That garden uh, had a purpose. It's part of the sensory experience that is there for children who may have problems communicating or children with severe disabilities or learning difficulties and also there to provide respite to the parents and families who are visiting these homes, uh, particularly through these very difficult times. There have been a lot, lot of outdoor meet and greets with family members at hospices across the UK. I actually caught up with the patronage uh, where I spoke to Tracy Rennie, the CEO, who told us a lot more about Kate's visit uh, and the flowers that she brought along with her. It must have been nice to actually have an in-person engagement uh, with the Duchess of Cambridge. Um, I I know these things are often sort of in the works for some time and I I would imagine there were some toing and froing whether it would actually happen or not. Yeah, as, as you can imagine, it took a great deal of planning. But I think um, what what worked for us really well. Um, so for the UK, it was Children's Hospice Awareness Week last week, and that provided a perfect opportunity because by that point, um, the, the sort of um, arrangements around who you can meet outside are quite different in the UK. So yeah. uh, we were able to think about how might the Duchess be able to visit a hospice, meet a family, or talk to a family, meet some staff but do it whilst we were still following our published guidance. So the fact, I know that she'd been quite keen to come and see us for quite some time, but 
you know, we had to wait quite rightly until it was the right time to be able to do that. And Children's Hospice Week, it just worked out beautifully, both for us, but also for Children's Hospice Week in general. Absolutely. And we, of course, saw her mark Children's Hospice Week uh, with a statement that she gave at the very beginning. I always look forward to the engagements that the Duchess does with each, because I think being one of her first patronages, uh, she has a very close affinity with the organisation um, and it ties in so nicely with all of her interests. Um, can you tell us a bit, bit about how that relationship has developed over the years and just the impact that her involvement has had with the organisation? Well, I mean, I met her on her very first private visit to Cambridge many years ago now and really, um, it really started out from the Duchess just wanting to understand more about children's hospices and about children's hospice care. And she came to meet some families and staff at the hospice very very informally very privately and it was just brilliant and i think that those early days meeting the duchess and even at that point her caring compassion her understanding about who we are about the needs of families and how she interacted with the children and the families and the staff has, has never left me from day one and, you know, not long after that first visit, um, she they contacted us to ask if we would consider that she could be a patron. And we were absolutely overjoyed and overwhelmed. Um, and I think over the time that we've um, engaged with the Duchess since, she's always been the same. She's always been incredibly friendly, incredibly open, caring, um, is, you know, well, is just as at ease talking to a family with a young child with a really profound disability, to a child, a sibling, brother and sister that might be running around or even a really newly bereaved family that are still sort of coming to terms with the fact that their child's died. And she always has this really positive, positive impact uh, on, the, on, on the conversation that she has with families. And the families, they never forget that. They will never forget that um, conversation with, for the rest of their lives. You know, without her realising, she, she creates really precious memories for families. And we, of course, got to see some of those memories being made in last Thursday's engagement where uh, she was photographed with families and staff helping uh, plant plants uh, at the garden there at the Nook. Um, and how did that idea come around exactly? It was actually the Duchess's idea. And I think, again, that's just brilliant because she understands who we are, but also because there are other interests in around sort of people's mental health, both children and adults, but also a love of gardening. That's one of the things that's really valuable in the hospice world, both children and adults, sort of the therapeutic effects of doing gardening together, being outside and doing an activity that's very positive that you can do with others. And it's surprising how you can chat whilst you're planting herbs. Yeah, yeah. You know, there was that aspect of it. But I think so they sort of floated that idea past us, which we just thought was brilliant. And then she asked us what types of things do we think we might might like. And we really gave her a really simple brief. It was please will you you know consider things that are of different colours, different textures different smells, um, something that we can use. So things like she brought strawberries and bay trees, but then all the different herbs and all the different, the, the fragrances, it really sort of, for children with really profound disability or communication difficulties, that is an amazing experience for them in herself. And we just said, you know, go and choose using that brief. And what she brought was absolutely great. And not only bring the plants, she also brought the planters. You know, we weren't, <laughs> this huge delivery. And we were, yeah, we were blown away, actually. And actually, I've been to the Nook today. 
uh, you know, a week on, and they're, they're, it looks gorgeous. It looks really gorgeous. Oh, that's lovely. And of course, the each hospices are all known for for having what's known as sensory rooms, which is a place as in inside that contains technology and products that can stimulate or even relax the senses of children who are unable to communicate or perhaps developing their communication skills and I would imagine that this garden is an extension of that in the outdoors. You, you know you've captured that beautifully that's exactly what it is so again it is and it's not just for children with profound disabilities it's for anyone at any time that just needs some time and space um, to, to see and think about things differently and being outside and having that sensory experience is really therapeutic it, it's really good for our well-being. Mm. We're now, you know, three months into this lockdown and of course there have been different iterations of it. I would imagine that that has been a series of tests for uh, for you and the hospice world um, regularly as, you, as you, know, you and I spoke just before the call that the goalposts keep changing. How has that been navigating this throughout such an incredibly challenging pandemic? So I think the goalposts do keep changing and we've had to be inc incredibly creative and I think we're still feeling and we're likely to feel the impact of COVID-19 for quite some time, both from the impact on the families, the impact on our service, and of course, the impact on our ability to raise funds through the charity. So if we think about the impact on the families, um, families have been fiercely shielding their children for nearly three months now, and they've been brilliant. The children have kept very well. We've had no child that we look after become seriously ill with COVID-19, which is incredible. Um, mm. But actually, the consequences for families is that they're becoming increasingly isolated and they're getting absolutely exhausted. So we've had to really think about how can we support families during this period in a different way. So we've still provided end of life care face to face, both in the hospice and at home. Um, and we've been providing some emergency care face to face, but we've all really had to become a virtual hospice overnight and use technology um, in a way that we've always said we've wanted to do and never done it before. So using things like Zoom or, you know, the different online platforms provide sort of face to face support on a video conference or by telephone or through our website. And we know that that's really, really important to families. And in fact, one of the most important things that families are telling us at the moment is they wait for that phone call when we contact them to ask them how they are and what can we do differently and how can we support them. Um, it's become a real lifeline for them because they are feeling incredibly isolated. And of course, the, the, what we're going through at the moment has presented financial difficulties and challenges for uh, charities especially. And I know a lot of the money uh, that comes into each is from the each uh, charity shops that we have across the UK. Um, and they've been closed for a, a long period of time. How has that impacted each in, in, in general? And how can people in, in the public sort of help make up for that? Well, I think um, when, when lockdown hit um, the very next week, we, we were losing income of around £150,000 a week from the outset because we had to shop. We have 43 shops. We had to close all of them, including the online shop overnight. And of course... And the impact on our fundraising was that people couldn't carry out their events or their sponsored events or you know, the bubble rushes, all the things that we all do together to bring money into charities. Um, having said that, um, we have just started reopening our shops just in the past week, uh, sorry, two weeks ago. We just opened a small number of five shops and, and the results are actually really encouraging. Uh, we're so it's so encouraging that we're opening another 13 of our shops next week but of course you have to make sure that you follow the guidance you keep people safe 
Um, but we, we, we found that sort of about 80% of our normal income from the charity shops has continued for this first couple of weeks, which is incredibly encouraging. And the, the generosity, actually, of the public um, rallying to support causes that, that they believe in. So we've had all sorts of pe things people are doing to raise money for us. We had a little chap, Stewie, um, who, uh, who's, who's, sadly, his brother died with us in January. But during May, he ran 5K every day of May to raise funds for the charity. So that's a little chap doing that. But we've had people doing all sorts of things and they've really rallied. And of course, in the UK, we have been able to access um, some of the UK grants, business grants, etc. So whilst we thought the first three months were going to be really horrendous, actually, we've been able to hold our own down to the shops being able to reopen, down to the generosity of the public and actually down to us being able to access um, government funding during this time. I think that's been one of the, the beautiful things that uh, what I've witnessed, and I'm sure the same for you during this time, is just that sense of community that people have. And people are very aware of the impact that moments like this have on organisations like each. And I think that people are being quite clever in the ways that they they've sort of come up with things that they can do to help. During Kate's visit, she not only met with the families, but she also spent time talking with the staff, um, care and facilities team, thanking them for the work that they do. Um, was she able to hear about some of the struggles that they faced? Yes, she did. But it's interesting, isn't it? Because the care staff and facility staff have been incredibly adaptable. Um, and so they were talking about some of the challenges that, um, you know, obviously we had challenges initially in the UK getting the PPE that we needed, but that hasn't been a problem for us for several weeks now. And so they were talking to her about having to remember to put their mask on when they go indoors and different types of equipment that uh, they have to wear, depending on what they're doing, whether that's care or facilities. Actually, the catering team, um, they said actually people still are hungry. And, you know, we have been providing services in our hospice buildings and families still need to be fed. And so actually this, this, this real comfort about the fact they've been able to continue pr providing amazing food, both for the families and the staff that have been working during that period. Um, it hasn't been without challenges. Um, if anybody you know, isn't used to wearing a face mask, you wear a face mask, it's, it gets hot, it gets itchy. If you wear glasses, yeah. your glasses seem up. There's some practical stuff, but boy, they adapted really, really quickly. And they were able to say that to her. Of course, things continue to change over the weeks and months ahead. And I would imagine that this visit isn't the only communication that you'll be having with the Duchess uh, over that time do those conversations continue they certainly do so we do keep um, the duchess up to date with what's happening and actually as part of her thank you to us all after the visit she said please will we keep in touch with her she's really interested to know how things are going and be really interested to hear how things um develop as, as the situation changes Thank you so much, Tracy. For any of the listeners that may want to get involved or to donate or just to learn more about each, where's the best place that they can go? The best place to go to is our website, which is um, www.each.org.uk. There's lots of information on there about us. Perfect. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure chatting to you. Um, take care Thank of yourself. You. I'm sure you. we'll be talking again soon. I hope so. It's been lovely to talk to you as well. Let's take a quick break. Now, of course, they may not be working members of the royal family anymore, but they are very busy members of the royal family 
who are working, if that makes sense. <laughs> the Sussexes have been incredibly busy over the last few weeks. In fact, ever since they left the UK and started their new life in Los Angeles, they've continued to dominate headlines, uh, particularly for the work that they're doing. And this week was what would have been Princess Diana's 59th birthday. We saw Prince Harry make a surprise video address on Wednesday uh, for the virtual awards ceremony honouring young people in the name of Diana, the Diana Awards. Uh, this was Harry speaking from his Los Angeles home, um, not just talking about the poignant occasion of what would have been his mother's birthday and continuing his mother's work, uh, but we also got to hear him address the Black Lives Matter movement. Uh, Maggie, you'll remember Megan talking about Black Lives Matter during her commencement speech for her former high school, uh, but this is the first time that we've heard Harry really speaking openly about the issue. Right now, we are seeing situations around the world where division, isolation and anger are dominating as pain and trauma come to the surface. But I see the greatest hope in people like you and I'm confident about the world's future and its ability to heal because it is in your hands. My wife said recently that our generation and the ones before us haven't done enough to right the wrongs of the past. I too am sorry. Sorry that we haven't got the world to the place that you deserve it to be. Institutional racism has no place in our societies, yet it is still endemic. Unconscious bias must be acknowledged without blame to create a better world for all of you. I want you to know that we are committed to being part of the solution and to being part of the change that you are all leading. Now is the time and we know that you can do it. You know, what I loved so much about this moment was that, you know, again, it was just kind of this this, this raw side of Harry. And, and like you said, we've heard um, from his wife, Megan, so many times, this has been an issue that even before she met Harry, before she became a part of the royal family, was something that you know, she was really uh, active in. We know that she's taken part in campaigns for anti-racism, and she's been very outspoken about her own background and her own upbringing in times where, you know, she has felt racism in her own life as well. Um, so she's been very vocal uh, about all of of these issues but to have Harry stand up there by himself too solo during this this speech I think was really important you know it's important for spouses it's important for all communities uh, even if you're not the target of racism but as he acknowledged has taken part in systemic racism it's important for all these communities right now to stand up and say something and so to have Harry do that and also acknowledge that his past has not been perfect, that he has made mistakes and he is sorry for them, but wants to move forward and do better for the future. I mean, all of those things are very vulnerable. So to have him do it and to have it happen on, you know, the, the anniversary of his mom's birth as well and what would have been his mother's birthday, um, it was just a very poignant, important moment. Absolutely. I think to address the issue of institutional racism uh, and the fact that it does exist and has no place in our society. That in itself, I think, particularly for the UK, is quite powerful. Um, it's a conversation that is still had here regularly, whether it, whether racism exists or not in this country. And I, I would think you, if you watch a lot of the commentary on certain TV shows, uh, it's still something that I think a lot of people have a tough time really addressing or accepting is a very serious problem in society. And so for Harry to really bring that up, but also to, I think what I loved about this uh, speech that he gave, he also you know, tossed the mic over to some of the young people who are actually the voices of community-led initiatives that are working to really fight against uh, racial injustices. Uh, there was one young guy 
who is working to see more black representation, particularly black Caribbean representation in British universities. Uh, and another wo young woman who is working with the charity fighting against racial injustice here in the UK. And I think really to highlight the work that others doing, that really is kind of the trademark Sussex move these days. We, we don't just see them using their own voices. We often see them sort of quote unquote passing the mic to others to share their, their work too. You know, that's such a good point. I think it's so important right now too, knowing when just to listen. And it, it was a really good thing that he did. I agree to say his part, but then sort of step back and let the people that are living it and have been working in this space for so long be able to, to vocalize. And he was using his platform as a way to help amplify their voices. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it was James Freighter, a 24-year-old guy who's a medical student at King's College in London. Um, he said that his when he spoke after Harry, and of course he was very flattered that Harry handed over to him, but he spoke about how his school days were really marred by being routinely dismissed or prematurely labelled by teachers uh, for, you know, I guess things that are often, unfortunately, stereotyped against uh, people of colour black people in this country um, and he spoke very openly about having to endure hundreds of school detentions and exclusions from school that weren't necessarily uh, rightfully handed out and so he spoke about really realizing that this was happening and why it was happening and then wanting to do something about it and he, he said towards the end of his speech he said if someone said to me when I was 14 James in 10 years time Prince Harry would know your story and your work I would say that's impossible and he said that this move this move that Harry had made to really highlight his work had emboldened him now to really work even harder to continue to do what he's doing and of course the work does continue behind the scenes with the Sussexes we heard that Duchess Meghan had spoken to a young woman who was the victim of uh, an alleged race hate crime. She connected with Althea Bernstein, an 18-year-old black woman in Wisconsin whose assault is being investigated by the police but also has made major headlines over the past couple of weeks, uh, part, in part because it's such a horrific crime. And I, uh, from what I heard from speaking with sources, Megan was really moved and horrified by this story and wanted to reach out to the girl herself to speak to her family, to hear her story and to find out if she's okay. She uh, had actually reached out to her via the president of uh, an, an initiative called the Boys and Girls Club of Dane County, uh, where she spoke with Michael Johnson. And he was the one, he's the CEO of the initiative. He connected Megan with Bernstein for a 40-minute phone call. And uh, Michael himself said that Megan and Althea spoke about the importance of self-care, allowing herself to heal, and how much how Megan had applauded her for the way that she had responded to this horrific incident. And uh, this has now turned into a relationship where Megan has said that she wants to actually give uh, talks to the boys and girls who are part of the Boys and Girls Club of Dane County. And so this is them really kind of quietly laying the roots for what will now be a cornerstone of their forthcoming non-profit organization, really focusing on racial injustice in the UK, US and around the world. Well, I, I wonder, obviously, when they, when they made this decision to leave the royal family, 
this was months before uh, this movement really started to, to break out all around the world. And obviously it's been a problem for so long, but I'm curious how much the movement uh, ended up sort of changing the future of their nonprofit. And perhaps they saw this as a time where they could really make a difference in something that was gaining this global momentum right now. And it's sort of fascinating to see how movements around the world impact nonprofits and Harry and Megan's recognition of this and realizing they have a chance to use this big platform to sort of keep the momentum going and keep the movement going. Yeah, it's interesting. I think that Harry and Megan's year has probably not been the year that they expected it to be. Um, of course, they knew they would be moving in some capacity things definitely happened very differently with them and the institution in terms of sort of the new chapter that they embarked on but then when they embarked on that new chapter we were suddenly hit with covid and the entire world went into lockdown and then during the pandemic we of course had this serious very serious moment with the black lives matter movement that i think has changed uh, priorities and ways of thought for so many people around the world and for the couple i think they really wanted to focus on uh, these two moments you know for harry he's we spoke before about his travelist uh, sustainable tourism initiative that in itself would have been severely impacted by covid19 and you know a world in which is currently not traveling but soon will be and we've heard from sources that he really wants to focus on being part of that kind of new shift in uh, the way people approach travel in the future and the role in which travelists can play, play in this kind of post-COVID-19 world that we're in. And the same goes to Black Lives Matter movement. The couple have now really made that such a priority for them. And it's why they visited Homeboy Industries in LA, which is one of the largest gang rehab and re-entry programs in the world. And uh, this was a visit that came up really organically, but saw Harry and Meghan in the kitchens of the bakery and uh, coffee shop elements of Homeboy Industries, uh, where they really got their hands dirty, essentially, uh, helping out in the kitchen and speaking with uh, all, all of the people there. It was a surprise visit, but one that I think uh, shows just how seriously they're taking things. Yeah, I, w I would say all of this just made me even more excited to see where they take their nonprofit. I think they have such a platform and momentum behind them, and they're both clearly passionate that right now it's exciting to think about what they could do with it. And in fact, I had a conversation with Father Greg Boyle, who founded Homeboy Industries, and he served as a pastor at uh, one of the poorest Catholic parishes in Los Angeles about 32 years ago and witnessed some of the devastating impacts that gang violence had on his community and started up Homeboy Industries, um, a place where people coming out of the criminal system or have been involved in gangs can actually find a way to uh, move their lives into a new chapter. This is a place that offers uh, programs for legal assistance, tattoo removal, um, education, employment opportunities. It's uh, really kind of a one-stop shop but has become really at the heart of a huge community in LA and uh, he shared some really interesting moments that he had with the Duke and Duchess of Sussex. Well this has been really exciting to see you team up with the Duke and Duchess of Sussex that the pictures that came out of the Homeboy Industries kitchens uh, were really exciting it was great to see Harry and Meghan out and about um, but I understand that the relationship has uh, really become something quite special. Yeah, so there, there's a, before there was a relationship, there was a connection. So um, Megan 
went to high school at Immaculate High School here. And I'm very much connected to that place. My mom went there. All my five sisters went there. I've said many masses there. And one of her um, essential uh, teachers was a Maria Polia. So anyway, so she had sent Megan over to Homeboy many years ago. In fact, she was 20 when she and her mom would come to these classes we had where they would, our chef would teach uh, folks how to make tamales. So she knew about our place. She'd been to our place. And then uh, through somebody, she, she uh, scheduled a call with me and uh, she and I and Harry had a conversation about, uh, you know, Black Lives Matter. We were in the, in the midst of the post-George uh, Floyd um, uh, murder. And so we talked about that and a lot of other issues. And then two weeks later, uh, she requested to come and visit the two of them to uh, just kind of pitch in. They didn't want to have a roundtable discussion or a tour or any kind of presentation. They just wanted to roll up their sleeves and work. And so that's what they did. And we got to see those great pictures of them uh, joining uh, some of the men and women that you're involved with working in the cafe and the bakery for a session of cooking and some conversation. They're a couple that are known for being sort of very hands-on. Uh, they like to really sort of get their hands dirty, so to speak. Um, did you ever imagine that you would have them in your kitchen helping prepare some of the foods? Well, it was kind of surreal. And then, of course, you have the added uh, pandemic precautions. So everybody was, you know, gloves and distance and masks. And so it made it kind of a different experience. But um, they were wonderful and, and thoroughly engaged, which was the thing that I, I, I suspect everybody um, marveled at. They, they, they really, no matter what workstation work they were at, making croissants or packaging meals, they were uh, asking questions. They were curious about a wide variety of things in the lives of our men and women who work there everything from criminal justice to their kids to everything. And so it was um, really something to behold, uh, to watch how reverent they were and attentive they were to all the people there. And of course, Homeboy Industries is the largest gang rehabilitation and reentry program in the world. And it's, of course, not just the bakery and cafe that you have there. Um, there's also counseling, educational, legal assistant, to removal, job training. Did the couple get to hear more about some of the services that are available through Homeboy Industries? Informally, they did. I, you know, I remember uh, Harry was asking me questions, and and as uh, so we would stand there, and and uh, though you know we were limited to just the kitchen and the cafe, uh, so they didn't see any other part of our operation, but uh, but they certainly ask questions about it. Um, and we've heard recently from Team Sussex that the couple really have shifted their focus now to really get involved in the Black Lives Matter movement and to really educate themselves on this racial justice movement. I understand that you've sort of played a role in that and really sort of having some sort of deep conversations with the couple. You were able to share some of the, the moments that you've had together. Yeah, I, I would I would want to emphasize that uh, it, it was not a kind of an issue, uh, systemic racism, that uh, the two of them needed to come up to speed on. They were, they were quite, uh, you know, brilliant really they were really had a depth of understanding of of what this um, 
entailed in, in the kind of how, how uh, racism really has uh, permeated every aspect of life in the United States. So, um, you know, they were very much uh, up to speed, if you, if you will. And, and yeah. so it wasn't a question of, here, let me educate them as if I could. They, they were quite knowledgeable and very, uh, and, I, and I'm sure if, you, if you've watched the commencement address of video that she did for her alma mater, it was very incisive and clear and challenging. And so there's, there's not a lot of this that she doesn't uh, get clearly, obviously. And so I'm, I'm heartened by the fact that they want to, um, you know, dedicate a certain part of their energy to addressing this stuff. Absolutely. And of course, we heard Prince Harry speaking at the Diana Awards, um, where he addressed the issue of institutional racism that doesn't just exist in the UK, um, but of course, in the US and around the world. The Sussex has, of course, been through uh, an incredible journey over the past few years and are now very much uh, sort of doing things independently. Were you following their story sort of in the past? And did you sort of get to witness perhaps some of these moments that you know, when, of course, we saw with Megan, she was on the receiving end of a lot of racism herself in sections of the media. Was that something that you were aware of? It's just only peripherally, not, not very, not with any depth. In, uh, and certainly she didn't uh, raise any of this in our conversations. But, uh, you know, I've, I've read, uh, I guess, uh, you know, in a superficial way, sort of what all that was, you know, especially in, as represented in the press. But, um, but I wouldn't say that I, I have much firsthand uh, knowledge based on my conversations with the two of them. And one of the things that we heard were Harry and Meghan and how much they connected deeply, as they said, with Homeboy's mission to welcome all people into a community of love and focus this focus on healing and the contribution to well-being of families and communities it's a regular theme that we see in a lot of work that they do they are very community focused can we expect sort of any future collaborations with the couple and homeboy industries i certainly hope so you know they're um you know we've invited them uh, you know to stay connected to us and certainly as uh we return to some semblance of what life was a little bit like before the pandemic um, my hope is that uh, they will feel as at home as they seem to be that day that they came to visit um, and of course we've heard harry in the past on engagements joke about his kitchen skills or, or lack of were you witness to sort of who might be best in the kitchen oh there's no question she was and and she was she just, you know, a, kind of a duck to water. She was completely acclimated to, you know, how to manipulate uh, dough so that it could turn into something um, magical. And so there were one of our, the homies, one of the guys was, was teaching the two of them how to do it. And uh, he, he was kind of had two uh, left thumbs, but, but uh, Megan was quite skilled at it. <laughs> That's brilliant. And I heard that she was speaking Spanish in the kitchen as well. Yeah, there was a one point where they were kind of in a conveyor uh, kind of moment where they're loading up these uh, meals that we we are making to address food insecurity in Los Angeles County. And there was a woman who clearly was um, 
you know, more comfortable in Spanish and, and Megan just launched right in and in, in Spanish that was quite, quite good. One, uh, one of the things that I've commonly spoken about with a lot of the charities and organizations that we speak with on the show is just how um, the tests this pandemic has been on charitable organizations, particularly those that are very reliant on uh, funding you know, from members of the public or donations. How has that affected Homeboy Industries? We've obviously sort of been in lockdown of sorts for the past three months. Um, how have you been able, able to ride this out? Yeah, it, with difficulty, and um, as Harry was asking about our funding, you know, uh, we're $20 million annual operation. Half of that is brought in by our social enterprises, which were momentarily, half of those enterprises were crippled momentarily by the pandemic. And the other half we have to raise. So that was a, a different thing than Harry's experience in the UK, where a program that's comparable to Homeboy Industries there would receive perhaps uh, some government help. Mm -hmm. we, we only get 1% uh, assistance from the government. So I, th I think he was surprised at sort of that, that ratio. And, um, but we, we have been able to pivot to, um, you know, providing food and meals for uh, uh, Jose Andres um, uh, World Central Kitchen and contracts with the city and the county. So, um, so we've been able to uh, shift from what we were doing to, to this um, production of meals. We have a lot of uh, listeners around the world. Uh, for anyone that wants to perhaps get involved or contribute in some way or, or even learn about Homeboy Industries, where's the best place that they can find that? Just go to our website at homeboyindustries.org. Father Boyle, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. Um, I have no doubt we'll be talking again soon. It sounds like Harry and Meghan really enjoyed their time with you. I would look forward to another opportunity. Thank you. Of course, you know I had to ask who was better in the kitchen. <laughs> you totally <laughs> did, didn't you? <laughs> I was curious, though, the whole time. Although we could have guessed that one. <laughs> I don't know. I, listen, I think lockdown has uh, allowed all of us to pick up uh, one or two new that skills. That is very true. That's very true. <laughs> I expect big things from the two of them. Absolutely. Um, unfortunately for the two of them, they are still involved in a court case or what will one, eventually be a trial with a mail on Sunday. Uh, we're in very early stages still. Um, but making headlines again, we saw Meghan, the Duchess of Sussex, uh, talking about feeling unprotected by the royal family um, from claims made in the UK tabloid press against her while she was pregnant. Now, there is a reason for this making the news. Uh, court documents that were filed with the High Court in London after a request from Associated Newspapers for more information um, resulted in uh, the Sussexes revealing some new details about some of the earlier moments that they had with Kensington Palace and their frustrations at not being able to speak out or to uh, deny or smack down stories that they felt were untrue. Now, this is, of course, all part of the court case with the Mail on Sunday that sees Meghan taking on the newspaper for publishing what she says was a private letter and their breach of copyright in doing so. The Mail on Sunday argues that Meghan had authorised friends to speak about the letter to People magazine. And so one of the things that was really clarified in these court documents was the fact that Meghan had absolutely no idea that five of her friends 
would be speaking to the US publication about such a personal matter. I do think it's interesting, I sort of, with all that's happening in the world right now and the fact that the worlds are back out on engagements and the whole world has changed in the past few months, you sort of forget that the court case is almost going on and they still have to deal with it in a certain sense. This, this kind of took me by surprise when this news broke and all of a sudden it, it seemed like it put drama back on the face of the royal family. Yeah, it's, un- it's unfortunate because I can see why for the Sussexes this is a necessary move. Um, they clearly uh, feel very strongly about the fact that there has been an injustice here. There has been a breach of copyright, a breach of privacy that they want to take on. As you know, Harry has said himself before, that he sees many issues within the British media that he feels that can't be ignored or ignoring them just sort of makes you complicit in being part of the problem and so for them to really try and see this through although it will be incredibly and emotionally exhausting um, they clearly have their eyes on a much bigger picture here this is all very much part of creating that uh, better life for themselves but for uh, the next generation as well, one of those being Archie, who of course you know must be tr- the driving force behind so many of the decisions that they made. But I think what's what's interesting about this is this is really the first time that we had heard Meghan speak about, or Meghan's lawyers speak about her frustration with not being able to comment on negative or untrue stories in the British tabloids. Of course, the palace is famous for its sort of no-comment approach to these things. And that's one of the things that's so frustrating about as a, as a royal correspondent is approaching the palace for a comment on a story that you know is not true. And so you really want to be part of, uh, I guess, a different narrative that rebuffs uh, this sort of inaccurate report out there. And so you get a no-comment back. It means that you're forced to then sort of go to other sources or have to ignore the story altogether and then that allows these sort of false narratives to continue um, and pick up speed as we've seen over the years um, and which causes a lot of damage Megan spoke in these papers and I've got the document here it's 31 pages long and just to reiterate this is the Daily Mail asking Megan's legal team for a third time for more information and you know, you and I spoke about this before, Maggie. Uh, there's, there's sort of like a slightly odd situation here because, of course, this is a legal case, but at the same time, by asking more questions, they're also gaining dozens of headlines that, as we've seen today and yesterday, are making front-page news. Well, I think what's interesting, Omid, you know, and I'm curious your take on it as well, a lot of what's coming out in this, as you say, 30-page-plus uh, expose kind of information is an insight for some of the public into the goings-on of royal reportings and how this works. And I'm curious if you think, as sort of the spotlight is shown on this culture, will it then have to change? I mean, as people learn more about how it works, do you think people will demand that it no longer works that way? I think what's really interesting about this is that this these documents do highlight a major flaw in the current royal institution's approach to dealing with the press. I think there has been a slight imbalance over the years that has always given the press the upper hand. I think the press gets to really, at times, say whatever it is that they feel like saying. And the palace, through their own faults, have created this system that doesn't really allow them to ever speak the truth or to actually put stories down. And, 
you know, it's hard to know where exactly this started and who still keeps that going. I know that from conversations with former communication staff that have worked at the palace, they themselves have been frustrated about not being able to comment on stories or to quickly smack something down. And of course, that's something that the Sussexes really struggled with. And, you know, my book, Finding Freedom, the biography on Harry and Meghan, which is out August 11th, so I can't say too much about it now. It really does touch, or I'd say touch, uh, explore the damage that uh, this kind of no-comment culture can have on uh, two people who are so desperate for the truth to be out there and have been so affected by mistruths, uh, having so much power over them and the, and the world that they belong to. And so I think what, what's, what really interests me here is that we're actually seeing the couple now clearly feeling emboldened to speak out about this. And I don't think this will be the first we hear of it. And of course, as I said, there'll be a lot more of this on, in the book. But I think beyond the book, I think that this will be something we hear from both Harry and Meghan on in the future, be it through this court case or future court cases. We know that Harry's in sort of constant back and forth with the sun over different legal issues and I'm sure that they will sort of become their own thing next year. Unfortunately for the couple, it's sort of a double-edged sword. By wanting to make things better for themselves and for others, they also have to suffer a little bit more for a little bit longer. It's interesting, all these things we're talking about, it's, uh, we're looking towards the future. I feel like we'll get some interesting answers over the next few months, if not year. Well, Maggie... I have to thank you for your patience because this is the third time that we've attempted <laughs> recording this podcast. You know, just three opportunities to chit-chat, Omid. <laughs> uh, Always a good time. The good news is is that we'll actually be possibly together next week. Maybe. So We can dream, right? <laughs> <laughs> Do you have post-lockdown lift plans? Oh, way too many to get into. I feel like my wanderlust list just keeps growing the more I'm in lockdown. (laughs) (laughs) I have to say that I'm very excited to be getting, and I am going to make this a public announcement, I'm getting a haircut tomorrow. (gasps) Whoa, whoa. This is the first time I've had a haircut Oh my gosh, I have not seen your hair long. Please take a photo and post it on Twitter right now immediately. I will. I kind of have a mullet. Wait, the world needs to see this. You need to post it. (laughs) A before and after. I will post it on Instagram. (laughs) Well, that is exciting. That is a good update on I think that's a great note to that leave That is a good on. note. Happy haircutting. It's really all about my hair. <laughs> Always so much fun to catch up, Omid. Thanks, Maggie. And a big thank you to my guests for joining the show this week. Of course, big thanks to you at home as well, or wherever you are listening to us uh, for tuning in. As you may have noticed, we are back to our regular Friday schedule every week on your favorite podcast apps. So make sure you're subscribed so you don't miss out on an episode If you want to tweet in or ask any questions, just reach out to myself at Scobie or Maggie at Maggie Ruley. Just use the hashtag the AirPod so we can find you. A huge thank you to the guys in New York for helping keep this show together whilst I deal with my various technical failings over here in London. Uh, Leighton Schneider, Anthony Alley and Michael Dubusky, your help is appreciated as always. Until the next episode, guys, take care of yourselves, look after each other, love one another, and I'll see you then.